Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Garfield, and this is Thursday, March 8th. 2018. How time flies. Why do some people win and others lose in a court of law? The answer, especially in foreclosure cases, is how little or how much the attorney for either side knows about the laws and rules of evidence. We're going to be talking about specific evidence down in the weeds tonight and joining me is Charles Marshall my friend and cohort who is a practicing attorney in Southern California and a highly skilled litigator as well as a uh, great philosopher we've had well always great to be on with you Neil yeah it's always great to be on with you Thank you. Thank you. And it's always great to have you. Tonight we talk about one particular point of evidence that lies like a pearl in the center of all controversies concerning a debt. If the debt exists, then there can be paper instruments that memorialize the debt, memorializing being they refer to that debt. That debt will be described in a bit. No piece of paper can create a debt. Think about that. A debt does not exist unless something real happened in the real world as we know it. Writing about it has no value unless it is part of a novel, in which case the value is in the book, not the debt described in the book, which has no value because it was fiction, part of a story. Maybe the novel has value because it's a good story, but the debt described in the novel does not exist no matter how much you you write about it or talk about it. We'll also talk about ownership of a piece of paper on which, at the top, it is written promissory note. And we'll talk about another piece of paper on which, at the top, is written mortgage or is written deed of trust. 
keep in mind that the debt is not evidence. It is the thing. It is the pearl. It is the fact of the matter asserted. It's what every foreclosure case is about. It's about the debt, the money. It is, it is the only fact that counts. All the paper in the world, with all the writing in the world, will never be a debt. At their highest level, paper instruments or books can only be evidence of a debt. And if they are not evidence of a debt, they are just piles of paper. People seem to lose track of that as the paper piles higher and higher. If there's no debt, no matter how high you pile the paper and no matter what's written on them, they have no value and they're not evidence of a debt because the debt doesn't exist. If the paper does not refer to a debt or transfer or a transfer of the debt, then it is worthless. If the debt does not exist, then the paper instrument that describes it is worthless like the novel that talks about a debt. As I've said before, I can't compress a, a full year of law school on this subject and 41 years of experience into a half-hour radio show or even a three-and-a-half-hour webinar, which is now on sale uh, featuring Charles and myself, as well as Dan Edstrom and Bill Padalo. Uh It's on sale on our website. It was uh, recorded on February 16, 2018, just a couple of weeks ago. Check the Living Lies blog for details. If you get that recording of that webinar, it will give you a broader view of evidence in general and specific evidence that either creates a continuous chain or that demonstrates gaps that you can exploit to show that the person or party seeking to collect or foreclose never owned, never possessed the pearl, the debt, your debt. You still owe the debt, but not just to anyone who claims it. If we had a law like that, there'd be no such thing as uh, car theft. It would just be somebody who claimed it, or even bank robbery. It'd be just somebody who claimed the money in the drawers of the vault. And I always say homeowners should hire an attorney licensed in the jurisdiction in which their property is located. And if you do get an attorney, you want somebody who is especially well-versed and experienced in trials, trial work, the courtroom, where you have to think on your feet and object, not an hour later, but right at the moment when a question is asked. Cross-examination with follow-up something which I have often seen in the courtroom where a lawyer goes in, he's got a list of questions. He asks the question, he doesn't listen to the answer, and he just moves on to his next question when the witness opens up a, 
you know, a, a double door into an area of inquiry which will reveal the gaps in the apparent proof of a party seeking to foreclose. As we all know, the number of attorneys willing to take on foreclosure defense is dwindling. So homeowners are forced to save their homes themselves, and lots of them are doing that. I know because I speak to them. There are hundreds of cases, probably every week, in which the homeowner was able to save their home because they didn't believe the servicer or anyone pretending to represent a creditor or anything like that. They just didn't believe it and they hammered away until eventually they settled on terms that were acceptable to them or they got a judgment and the party seeking the foreclosure eventually says, okay, you can have the house. For some, it takes literally 10 years of court battle, court battles to save their home. I've heard of cases that are even longer than that. After they have drained the last ounce of strength from you, 10 years later, they say, okay, you can have the house, but not until we have squeezed you dry. So it's up to you and hopefully your attorney to battle them and maybe shorten that 10-year period so that you can get a judgment in your favor and force them to leave you alone. Their problem is going to be always that they don't have a creditor, they don't have an obligee. We'll get into that in a minute. All they have is a claim, a blanket claim. It's like a novel, a book that they wrote talking about your... It doesn't even talk about your debt. It has an exhibit which is ordinarily not attached, which they call a mortgage loan scheduled, MLS. And... Um, that's that's all they've got. They they don't have the pearl. They don't have the the debt. They don't have the owner of the debt. All they got is stacks of paper creating the illusion which most people believe at least up to a point is basically true and so those people look for a technicality which a judge instantly recognizes as just a gimmick to try to get out of a legitimate debt and then characterize the person as somebody who's trying to use the gimmick to get a free house. By the way, the counter to that is that even if you've got a complete judgment in which the mortgage was lifted or the deed of trust was lifted and the note was satisfied and all that, you still don't have a free house because of all the time it took you to battle it and all the money that you put in it. Origi originally, which in many cases 
uh, was at uh, like a case I just uh, did consulting on this morning. Uh, the value of the house is still uh, one-third below what the amount of the debt is. So, okay, uh, we might have time for questions and answers. We have a short show tonight, uh, 30 minutes, 28 minutes talk time. Uh, if we do have time, follow the instructions you received when you called in, and you will appear on my dashboard. If time permits, the questions will be asked in the order they come in. And we have about 30 minutes show time, which means 28 minutes talk time. Uh, uh, please let us know the status of your case and ask one question. I'm broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida, brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield firm with offices in South Florida. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners just like you. Thank you. And for those of you who have not yet made contributions, we ask you that you hit the donate button on the blog or call our main number, which is not the number of the show, 202-838-6345. The last four digits spell Neil, N-E-I-L. Pledge whatever you think you can afford. If this show has value for you, then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. What is done on this show, what is done on the blog, is without compensation or revenue of any kind. We spend hours and hours every day producing information, thoughts, and highlights for your consideration without anybody paying for it except donations. So please, if you're thinking about it, please do it. In my last two shows, I talked about evidence and exceptions to the rules of hearsay and more specifically the business records exception to hearsay. But let's dig deeper tonight. Let's ask the question about evidence, proof, and persuasion. No, they're not all the same. You might have information that tends to prove something important to your case, but it's not evidence and it proves nothing unless you can get it into the record as evidence. And none of that matters if you are not also persuading the trier of fact, which is usually the judge. And the judge is obviously not going to give a lot of weight to evidence which did not carry the burden of persuasion. So if you are trying to reveal a gap, you have to be aware of the reaction of the judge and to see how much drilling down on a witness that you're going to do in order to get to the point where you got the attention of the judge, sometimes while he's writing his grocery list. So... Deep in those weeds, hidden behind stacks of paper, blocked by walls of books and covered in gloom, lies a pearl of unquestioned beauty. It is an actual fact. 
It is a thing or event we can all see in the real world, or it is treated as a physical thing by our laws from time immemorial. It's treated that way because we've always treated it that way. The debt, the pearl, is not evidence of anything. It just exists as a product of a real-world event in which one person loans their money to another person who agrees to pay it back. Presto, you've created three things. You've created the debt, which is just as real in the eyes of the law as the pearl. You've created an obligor or debtor, which is the person who received the money and has agreed to pay it back. And you've created an obligee or creditor, who is a person who is entitled to receive the money back. Notice that we don't have any paperwork yet. The debt exists regardless of whether paperwork exists or not. And the debt and the paperwork can never create a debt. So if I give you money and expect it back, there's the debt. That's the law. We don't know the terms of repayment yet, but it's, if there are no terms of repayment in our agreement, then it's presumed to be a demand debt where at any time I can ask for the money back if I loaned you money. But the fact is that a debt has been created. There's no paper promissory note or other agreement yet. There is no mortgage or deed of trust, and yet there it is, a pearl of factual reality, an actual fact, an actual debt, which continues to exist until it's extinguished, either by payment or by operation of law. So anyone who says that you're trying to get out of a debt the answer is, there's no such thing as getting out of a debt. It exists regardless of what happens here in this court of law. If I delivered my money to you, we have created two other facts besides the existence of the debt. One is that you owe me money. You are the obligor and you should be the payor on any instrument claiming to be the promissory note, if the note is referring to our private debt. And you should be the mortgagor on a mortgage instrument or grantor on a deed of trust. And the third fact that now exists is that you owe the money to me, the obligee. I am the obligee, the creditor and I should be the payee on the promissory note referring to our private debt. As the obligor, you are therefore called the debtor, the one who owes the debt. As the obligee, I am called the creditor, 
the one to whom the debt is owed. If you are the debtor, then it makes sense that you would be the payor on the note and the mortgagor on the mortgage or the beneficiary under a deed of trust. If I am the obligee, then it makes sense for me to be the payee on the note, on the promissory note, arising out of the factual event in which I gave you my money expecting it to be repaid by you. By the way, there's a presumption that if you get money from me, it's presumed to be a loan, not a gift. You would have to prove that it was a gift if you want to try to go that route, and I don't suggest anybody try that because uh, it will most certainly lose 100 out of 100 times. It also makes sense for me as obligee, as creditor, to be the mortgagee on the mortgage or the beneficiary under a deed of trust. So what happens if there is no pearl in the oyster? What if the pearl doesn't exist at all? What if you and I never even met, never transacted any business in the real world. What happens if that paper that we were talking about before somehow still exists? The paper instruments, the note, the mortgage, they exist. What does that mean? Are they evidence of a debt? Yes, they are evidence of a debt because they talk about a debt. Are they admissible evidence? Maybe. Can this evidence be discredited? Of course. The pearl is gone. It never was. What happens if there is no pearl, no debt? And uh, Let's say I endorse the note to someone you don't know, or that I assign the mortgage to someone else? You know the answer. If there was a debt, then it could have moved if it was purchased. Under Article 9, value has to be paid in order for the debt to move with the mortgage. Otherwise, you, the debtor, might refuse to pay the new person unless I confirmed that they had, in fact, bought it. The same with the mortgage. I want to give some time here to Charles. Charles, comments, questions, thoughts? Uh, I think that's a really good framework for presenting how the debt is there no matter what. I mean, clearly money is exchanged in these securitized transactions. But the other critical point uh, that comes from what you were, were describing is where Ivanova, I think this, I think the Ivanova case relays this in a, in a very eloquent way. And that is one of the, uh, the gems out of the Ivanova holding was, the debtor does not owe money to the world at large. The debtor owes money to a specific individual, a specific institution possibly standing in the shoes of an individual. And that would be, you know, the Wells Fargo, the Chases, you know, even the Bank of New York Mellons of the world in some cases. Though 
typically they, they come in at, at the securitization stage. Um, bottom line, though, there's some party claiming to be extending the money at the beginning. The problem is, is that really the party that loaned the money, number one? And number two, is is that party even available after the transaction, whether it's an origination or, or refinancing? Is that party even available to confirm terms, to make payments to, et cetera? So what ends up happening, as, as you and I well know, Neil, is the money goes into a rabbit hole in so many of these securitized cases, and at the end of the day, there really isn't a legal entity that can evidence control of where the money went. And that's what these foreclosure cases are about, whether whether they're brought as plaintiff's actions on behalf of borrowers or whether they're responses to judicial foreclosures in, in states like Massachusetts or Florida. So in those situations, uh, you know, the borrower needs to to dig into all the details. And uh, I know we've got limited time here. I think you could you could you could uh, provide a little bit more information on the on the distinction between evidence, proof, and persuasion. Because in any evidentiary hearing, whether it's a motion for summary judgment or a trial, the distinction among those three is very important. Yeah, I think it's uh, there's nothing more important. You could have the most important piece of evidence in the world. If the judge is not paying attention and just generally allows it into evidence, he's not going to think about it when he makes his decision. And, you know, uh, I've heard so many attorneys uh, say, well, at least I got it into the record. Well, what good does that do? I mean, you know, maybe on appeal it'll do something doubtful, but, you know, it really doesn't do you any good to slip something into the record where you're not persuading the judge of anything. So Exactly. Yeah, I mean, because it's absolutely critical that you meet your burden of proof, and that's what the evidence is directed toward. Uh, in these cases, typically the burden of proof is going to be preponderance of, of the evidence. That means that the the moving party from whatever side they're on, plaintiff or defendant, with preponderance of evidence as a standard, the moving party still has to show that the fact they're trying to prove that it's more likely than not that that fact isn't is really true, and whatever evidence evidence is put forward to try to establish that fact, there has to be enough there in the reasonable inferences to be drawn from that evidence. Those inferences have to be clear enough that, as you say, the fact finder could either be the judge or the jury, depending on whether there's a jury trial. Uh, it's often the judge, and the the third prong you 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 well mentioned is persuasion. And however the evidence lines up, 
such that the proof can be reasonably inferred from it. The persuasion aspect is to use rhetoric, whether that's in writing or orally during oral argument, to use rhetoric to convince the judge that what you've just presented is the only reasonable way to look at the situation. Because if it's the only reasonable way to look, look at the situation, yeah. then then it should be accepted. The, the way I uh, do certain things in court, you've probably done the exact same thing, is when I catch the judge not paying attention, I ask the judge if I should stop um, uh, and, and pause for a moment. It appears that the court is distracted. And... Uh, that brings them back on board. Charles Marshall, thanks for joining us. We're at the end here. We'll be back Absolutely. on next week and the week after. Thank you all for joining us, and have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show. For free information and advice, and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.